Hello and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, it's a genuine delight to have a return guest, Shelley O'Donovan from the Authentic Influence Group. You may recall that she has a long history in working in pharmaceuticals, in politics and lobbying, and influencing key decision makers. We're going to be discussing what's to come because we're very clear that the future is uncertain. We have all sorts of uh, potential issues facing us, interest rates going up, inflation, stagflation, deflation, the stock market crash is predicted. Um, There are all sorts of uh, other issues. Maybe we're going to go into another round of lockdowns. And so uh, this is a terribly stressful time for a lot of people. So we're going to look at questions like, am I leaking my stress uh, to my people as a leader or a manager? Am I packaging my messaging correctly so that I'm getting people on side and not alienating them? Am I putting unfair expectations on my team because of the stress that I'm feeling or the pressure I'm feeling from above? What kind of blind spots do leaders and managers face when they are in stress? Are they being objective? Are they holding on to old beliefs about their people? Are they stuck in their way? These are the kind of topics that we're going to be covering today. So Shelley, welcome back. Thank you. I'm excited to be here today. And uh, I think we have some interesting stuff to cover. We certainly do. Okay, well, let's start with the big question. What's to come? Wow. (laughs) (laughs) If I had my crystal ball. (laughs) (laughs) Let me get out the crystal ball. You know, it doesn't look great. Uh, You know, I think that there's just been so much shifting. And I was telling you earlier before we started that I work in, have worked in pharma for a long time. And I know what's happened there is that, you know, the pandemic hit, people went into lockdown and everyone just kind of buttoned down their companies and said, okay, we're just going to stay on the boat the way we are. But then things started to open up a little bit and there's a lot of shifting. So you certainly have employees leaving, but now you also have, you know, this need to maybe think about how we're organized or some of our product lines have changed. And so now there's lots of shifting internally as well. So certainly in the the pharma space and in other areas as well, they're looking at like what makes the most sense for our company moving forward. And that causes a lot of internal stress for folks. I was watching a really interesting video by Jay McBain, the lead analyst uh, for Forrester in the channel. And his prediction for 2022 is 72% of employees in technology will be looking to change jobs in 2022. Now, 42% in the great resignation in 2021 um, across the board. So as a leader, as a manager, this must be an issue that they have to address And I'm really curious, first of all, when you're facing that kind of monumental pressure, and it it has been this sort of coalescence of lots of disasters in in quick succession, how do you cope? And how do you you convey how important it is uh, to your people that they cope too? Yeah. So first is to model that behavior, right? So making sure that you're taking the time that you need to cope with those changes, to get some distance from it. But the other thing is just making sure it doesn't leak out. And so you can imagine if I'm a leader and I am just oozing stress every day, my team is totally going to pick that up. And so, you know, I teach body language as well. So certainly there are things that just come out in your body language that show stress. And so before you get on those calls, before you see your team, you need to take a moment and kind of calm yourself down, almost like center yourself and not leak that out. And then on the flip side, being honest when you can about what's happening, because I find that leaders often, they try to hide what's happening and people aren't stupid. <laughs> they they know what's happening in the company. And while you may not be able to share every detail, at least giving them as much upfront and packaging it really well can help. So uh, I agree with you 100%. What I'm curious about is how does one deliver a message with vulnerability without making yourself the victim and being taken advantage of. Yeah, and that, right, that is really, that can be a real skill as well. And so the first thing is, if you're walking into this and the first day that you're going to show any vulnerabilities, the 
day that you're, you know, announcing these changes, like that's a problem right there. Like I would have hoped that the whole time along when you're managing, managing people, you show them some of that vulnerability, but you also have to remain calm and have to, you know, paint this picture of what life is going to look like once we get through these changes how we can come together as a team. So kind of painting that positive picture, but it still has to be realistic. So I have a perfect example for you. I was sitting in Big Pharma at one stage many, many years ago, and we were brought into a room and there was kind of big screens and there was this whole dog and pony show. And at the end of this this big show, my colleague turns to me and he says, Shelly, I don't know if we just won a trip to Disney World or if we just all got fired. And so that's a really (laughs) tough problem, (laughs) right? You have your employees walking out completely confused about what happened. So you have to frame the message so that it really is is headed where you want it to, to head. And so it's totally calm, and you hit all the main points, but you can't kind of sugarcoat it either because it confuses people. Okay. So in terms of getting your messaging right, what advice would you give to a leader who's facing a difficult conversation with their people? Yeah. So the first thing is to be as honest as you can, but also to package the message well. So when we go into these really difficult conversations, I'm amazed at how many leaders don't take real time to sit down and and walk through what they're going to say. You know, they walk through it for like a quick minute and then they don't really, they don't test it on anyone else. They don't. And so if you have a really difficult message, the first thing is to make it very clear what you're communicating, get to the point, but also you know, think about think about it from the person receiving it. So if I'm giving Marcus a tough lesson, you know, I'm telling you that something's going to happen in our workplace. I need to think about how you are going to receive it. Yeah. I need to think about where you are on that day. You know, are you giving this message like the day before the holiday? And that's going to upset Marcus, right? <laughs> right? Because just timing alone. So really thinking at it from that other person's perspective. Remember years ago, someone said that you never fire anyone on a Friday, you fire them on a Monday, because uh, if they have, uh, if it happens on a Friday, they're all thinking about it over the weekend and talking yeah. to them, they come in on Monday miserable. So first thing on Monday is the firing day. Um, but <laughs> one of the things that's really striking me about the general uh, state of business at the moment is that an awful lot of managers have been promoted into management not for their management capability, but because they were good operators. And so in those first couple of years, in those their, their first or second, probably their second management job because they got fired from the first yeah. one, what can they do to start really grounding themselves? Because it, the pressure is only going to get tougher um, as they move up the chain of command. So how can, how can new managers prepare themselves for the stress of what's to come? Yeah. I mean, so the first thing is actually to really focus on some self-awareness. So knowing that, hey, I've been put in this role because I'm good at, you know, operational stuff, but I may not be quite there. Um, I actually work with a lot of folks that get into this position. They kind of get promoted. And then all of a sudden they're like, "Uh uh-oh, like I don't have, I don't have the gravitas. I don't, and they just feel like something's a little bit off and they want to work on that. Right. So That's really important. First, having that awareness that, and I don't care who you are, you can improve your communication skills. You can improve your leadership skills at any level. Um, So just being open to that is really the first step and trying to work on that, work on yourself and work on all of those things. Having someone as a sounding board on the back end that you can say, this is what happened today. I don't know. It could be a mentor. It could be a sponsor. But there needs to be some uh, someone else giving you some insights into how to manage because it way too often people are promoted into management roles that don't have the management skills. Well, I, I work with two companies in the management enablement space. Um, and what I'm finding really fascinating is just how little investment there is in that middle management layer. 
But you know, one percent will get onto um, an INSEAD MBA or whatever. The rest of the managers, to a large extent, are certainly in smaller organisations. They get next to no training and no runway. And what strikes me is that the point upstream where you can have the greatest downstream impact with the least effort and the least cost is by enabling that management layer to coach operationally on the job in the moment. No kumbaya moments and fight, you know, an hour and uh, incense and candles, but getting down and dirty. You come to me with a question and I stop, I think, and instead of responding with a, an answer, I give you a question to help you work it out. Now, working with uh, several companies, and mo- all of these are enterprises, being able to get return on investments of 70 to 426 ROI in under six months by doing that. And then the ripple effect across those organizations in terms of increased confidence, increased creativity. And you get, when, when you tra- uh, coach, when you train managers to coach operationally, and you do that in, simultaneously with hundreds or thousands of managers together, you get this amazing wave of change. The language changes, the atmosphere changes, and the level of engagement changes, the level of discretionary effort increases. And people want to come to work. Now, that has a knock-on effect on share price, et cetera, et cetera. So again, if you were advising boards, because I'm really interested um, at the board level, how do you get board members to recognize the critical importance of coaching and not just executive coaching, but coaching everyone in the organization? Yeah, I think that's really an interesting point because what I find is that just like what you're saying, like the the high performers get coaching and then the folks that are really struggling sometimes get like a, you know, a nod to coaching before they're kind of let go. Essentially, it's like the, you know, check the box. We gave this person coaching. And so the the folks in the middle end up with nothing, right? They have no no ability to move up because they don't quite have the skill set there. And so that, that is really a challenging place. So I, you know, I think that the thing is having, again, having something that is going to persuade that board. So it's packaging that communication in a way that works. So making sure that you give them evidence, right? And so often boards want to see numbers. So can you capture kind of the ROI on that? Also just giving them some personal stories as well, some anecdotes as, you know, we took this person from this place to the next place and look at look at what that projection is, look at what's happened. The really important bit is doing it at scale, but in parallel. Because doing it one, one by one, that's just like you know, being a, a drop and you know, trying to lots of drip, droplets that are trying to erode a rock. But if you get 500 managers, and you only have 500 miles, or even if you had 5,000, 500 of them doing this stuff every day. Do you know, do you know the average manager gets 80, uh, 16 to 20 interruptions a day from their team asking for help, direction, an answer? Um, now, probably 70 to 80% of those are coachable moments. Now, when you consider 70 times 240, that's the, you know, 1,400, 1,500, learning opportunities missed by every manager throughout mm-hmm. your entire organization every year. And you multiply those numbers out and you're talking millions, hundreds of thousands, millions, tens of millions, or even hundreds of millions when you're talking about the bigger organizations. Now, what's really interesting then is how do you get that scale? Because that's difficult. The organizations I've been working with actually can deliver that kind of thing at scale, but up right. until you've not been able to do that. And this is really exciting. Uh, the London School of Economics and Harvard have done studies on this now. Uh, well, Harvard is in the middle of one, and uh, LSE has just completed it. And what they found with uh, 62 separate companies, every single one of them achieved a significant triple-digit ROI, I think. And every single one of them, every manager who completed the fourth week on a 12-week program uh, was able to add value to the business and make, make their money back. Now, that's really interesting because uh, more often than not, they're looking at the wrong end of the problem. Right. And so to my mind, we need to equip leaders and managers with the skills to ask really insightful and difficult questions that will make, you know, they're even uncomfortable to ask. 
But I don't think that that's uh, something that is anywhere near as prevalent as it should be. It's funny you say that because it just reminds me of a company that I was doing some work with a few months ago. And I was working with a leader there and he was telling me that they have this culture of everything being really nice and positive and but it pr- it produces this weird undertone right of folks not really addressing issues properly of you know knowing there's an issue there but not being able to tackle it and and so it's it's tough because you do have to have those tough conversations and i think the other thing is you know as somebody reporting into a level you have to have that that security and feel like I can tell Marcus the truth. Like I can tell him what's really happening in my world so that I can get that information from him. So I can get that coaching from him. And so many times there's just these, you know, this drama, you talked about drama earlier and this drama happens. And and so there's not that safety on these teams to have those conversations. And they're a little bit too worried about, you know, what happens if I do bring this, this, challenge forward when exactly it could be such a great learning opportunity. So there has to be that trust built as well. But I think also there has to be, if you if you want this to work, there has to be that executive buy-in. And those senior executives need to be involved in delivering those operational coaching moments as well. But almost no one is really setting that time aside. I mean, there, there are some, you know, it would be unfair to say no one, but it is the vast majority are just doing stuff. Now, if you look at the manager's job, there's leadership, there's supervisory, there's doing, there's design, and there's coaching. Those right. five buckets. But they're spending most of their time, and I suspect in the next couple of years, as things really tighten up, they will end up delegating less and doing more. Mm-hmm. So then more propensity for burnout, and they become a bottleneck. They disempower their people by doing that because uh, you just come to me and I answer it. That doesn't equip you to do anything and it doesn't prepare you for the future. And 40 to 60% of my working day is taken up doing the work of the people in my team. Yes. Now, when you fix this, you get, on average, they recover a day a week. Now, that's two and a half months in a year. That's huge. Yeah. Yeah. And you do that across the entire organization. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, what, what's what's really fascinating, though, is when we look at the changing landscape, this represents a fantastic opportunity. I'm looking at this as the beginning of a renaissance. I'm right. seeing a massive growth in collaborative technologies. And I fundamentally believe that your success in the future will be absolutely determined by your ability to collaborate as an individual as a team, as a business, even with your com- competition. You know, pre-competitive alliances you talked about last time, um, yeah. the various others, we have to learn how to collaborate. But culturally, many organizations are fixated on command and control. They want everything in-house. So they won't outsource, they won't use partners. They tell, right. I, I was speaking to one of my clients earlier today, and uh, for the last 32 years, he has built over 1,000 international distribution channels. And being responsible for hundreds of billions of dollars in pharma, medtech, devices, and so on, right. uh, in uh, upwards of 135 countries. And he meets a bunch of um, uh, VPs of sales, and they keep saying, we tried it once, it doesn't work. Okay. Now, they obviously bollocks it up. So how do you change someone's mind, particularly where there's stress, they've got this history and this baggage, how do you get through all of those uh, negative filters and that resistance? Yeah, so that, I mean, that is tough. And first of all, the right person has to bring that message forward. So there has to be credibility there with the person who's bringing that message forward. And then the other thing is starting to build the people around. So for instance, if it's on, if it's one particular person that has to make the final decision, it doesn't mean that even though that person's going to kind of sign the dotted line, it doesn't mean there's not other people that are influencing them. So you have to start to see who has their ear, who can you reach out to? How can you weave in these stories? How Sometimes how can you make it feel to them like it's their idea 
I mean, sometimes that is the best, the best way to get something, you know, out there. Like, like I make it sound like it's Marcus's idea and then he's happy to do it and take it. And I may not get the credit that I feel I deserve, but you know what? You got the end game. So you focus on the outcome. Isn't it? That, that's coaching. Absolutely. Okay. That was simple. Okay. We fixed it. <laughs> <laughs> so let's deal with values then. How do the values of the leadership affect the rest of the organization? So, I I mean, they absolutely affect the organization. And they're, you know, the other thing is the values of the company. Are they living those values every day? Do they really believe in those values or do they not? Um, And that stuff is really, it's one of these things we think we can kind of act the part, like we believe the company values, but we really can't. I mean, it really is obvious when you have leaders that are, you know, doing things that don't, don't line up to the mission or they don't really believe in the mission of the company and it just leaks through. And unfortunately it trickles down. And, you know, I just remember at one point working with a client who, they had these big layoffs. And so they cut all their like travel. This was like pre-COVID. They cut all their travel and they were saying like, you can't travel for work. And then one of the leaders on one of the teams had to go um, give an interview somewhere, like a couple hours away. And And this person rented like, a very fancy like limo service to get up to this meeting when easily they could have taken a train or done something else. So right there is just such a clear mismatch with the values and asking things of your team that you're not willing to do yourself. And that, you know, that really starts to make things uneasy in your team very quickly. I had a wonderful bit of advice about a month ago, which is that if you're going to ask your salespeople to produce a report, you do it first. <laughs> so that's really indicative. If you if you built your CRM system, for example, from the top down, uh, you're going to find out very quickly just how bad that decision was. Um, yeah. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's a good early warning system. Interesting. Okay. So how does one use values as a filter in order to delegate decision-making down the chain of command to release yeah. managers? I- so the first thing is to kind of pull pull together what those values are and they can they don't necessarily have to be the company values they could be your team's values so pull together what those values are and then use that as a litmus test for everything that goes through so you know if if you put values together that you know we're going to make ethical decisions we're not going to overtake the you know, we're not going to overexpense things, like whatever that is. And then you run that through. But again, as the leader, like you have to adhere to those rules too, because that is what destroys trust, like in just a split second. And it doesn't even have to be a big thing that you do, but if it's enough that somebody sees it and catches it and, you know, why is this person getting away with, it just destroys trust on your team. We're seeing it in the UK at the moment. We've got Bozo Johnson, you know, in uh, one of his biggest political fights ever. I'm sure he'll survive because he usually does. If he doesn't, uh, you know, uh, hopefully I'm wrong. But turning up to a Christmas party that they all had at the same time, uh, they were telling us that we shouldn't have one and various others. It's a tiny, petty thing. But what it's done is it's created that dissonance. And finally, people are starting to see through the veneer. Most people just gave them the benefit of the doubt because the opposition was so bad. Right. So we're we're seeing that. I mean, by uh, tonight, he might be out. Who knows? Yeah, well, we, you know, we had something a couple of years ago uh, in the U.S., one of the governors of New Jersey, he closed the beaches because I think it was a funding issue. Like they didn't have money to open the beaches. And so he closes the beaches and then he goes to his like governor's, you know, residence on the beach and he's sitting on the beach with his family. And of course there's like, you know, news helicopters circling and they've got pictures of him on the beach having his nice weekend vacation at the beach and nobody else could be on the beaches. Yeah. So that stuff really, that really gets to people. And if you're doing that, like, and don't think that you can hide it. Like that's the other thing. Sometimes leaders think, well, I'll just do this little thing and nobody's going to find out about it. And somebody always finds out about it. Absolutely. Your dirty little secrets will always come out. 
Absolutely. So looking ahead, we've now got probably a fairly tumultuous time. Even those people who are going to grow and succeed in this uh, tough economy are going to be facing many, many challenges uh, around recruitment, retention, talent development, customers disappearing, suppliers disappearing, all that kind of stuff, which means that uh, the board is now facing a really tough and fractious time. They're all under pressure. And in many cases, they will have investors or the markets putting them under pressure. In that kind of environment, what should the CEO uh, be saying to them? And how can the CEO's behavior enable the team, uh, the the management team, to galvanize behind whatever the mission and purpose is? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is, first of all, being open and honest with where you are and trying to package it. You know, these are the things that we have coming. This is the decisions that we're going to have to make. And then doing things that really show that you're supporting that. So, you know, I I remember the story about Lee Iacocca years and years ago, and, you know, he's making this huge salary and decides that the company's going through tumultuous times. So he decides for that year, he's going to take $1 salary. Like that speaks volumes. And I'm not saying that every CEO should do that because that's a big, that's a big thing. But but that is like a really strong indicator of just strong leadership. I, I get where you are. Like, I'm going to take a hit on it as well. Because so often at the top, we're not really willing to take the hit ourselves, yeah. but we'll pull the company through it. And so making sure that's clear and that's clear to the board as well, that, listen, I'm in this with you. I'm, I know we have to make these tough decisions, but you know, here are the things I'm doing and here are the things I'm going to ask for the teams to do. That all becomes really important. So as a CEO in these tumultuous times, um, how should they, what sort of cadence should they have for coaching their own frontline reports? What do you mean by cadence? When you, how frequently? How frequently, um, yeah. And what, what, what type of coaching? How much emphasis is there? So, I mean, I think in these tumultuous times, that needs to be one of the main things that you're focused on. So letting that door as open as you possibly can for your team to help, to help them along, but giving them the skills as well and the, and the resources to really be able to work through this. So they need back supports, you know, could be some coaching, coaching on the back end from outside vendors, from inside vendors. Um, It's really interesting. I, get hired a lot by companies to come in and and coach your executives. But I've noticed recently this shift is that people are actually seeking coaching without their companies knowing, and they kind of don't even want the company to know. So it's, it's interesting to me. So, you know, to me that, that shows a little bit of, I don't know, just a mismatch in trust there for their employees. I don't know. You've touched a really critical point because if you don't trust your, your leader, then that will be a major factor in your problems around retention and attraction uh, of talent. Okay, this is really interesting. Okay, so if we think about where the board's focus is, in in my experience, in fact, I, I had a really fascinating conversation yesterday with Dr. Alan Watkins, who plays in the space of wicked problems. So he's looking at how do you solve world hunger? Uh, how do you solve climate change? How do you, and he coaches 25 of the boards of the FTSE 250. So, I mean, really in the the gnarliest, messiest part um, of the business and uh, dealing with big, gnarly, hairy ass problems that are really complicated. They're tied together. They're interdependent and you can't fix them with one dimensional solutions. And he says that executives, business generally is focused on it. Stuff you can measure, the tangibles, revenues, uh, number of dials, proposals, uh, number of people you've hired, hired or fired, whatever. But almost no emphasis is focused on the I. I is me, my identity, my self-concept, and understanding who I am, my place in the world, what makes my heart and soul sing, and where I can really play to my uh, greatest strength. And then the we is how do we get people to collaborate? How do we get? Um, uh, how do we g- generate discretionary effort and engagement across the organization, not just in pockets? And almost nothing is done around the I and the we when it comes to transformation. 
lots around um, you know, throwing tech and um, spending money on uh, hiring and training and new buildings. And none of that stuff makes a whole heap of difference because the needle doesn't move. Yeah, that's, it's so interesting. And I, I think you're you're really on to something there. And that's the thing that's sometimes lacking in leaders. They don't kind of turn the mirror back on themselves, even communicating. We can all improve our communication. We can all improve the way we're working with our teams. And so really looking at, you know, what can I bring to, what skill set can I bring to the team? What are the values that I have that I can actually connect with my team on? And if I have blind spots, then knowing where those blind spots are and making sure that you have others on the team that can kind of cover those blind spots for you. But that takes somebody who's really aware of who they are. And so if you don't, if you don't spend the time to really know that as a leader, um, then you know you're kind of walking on a path without really seeing where you're headed. <clears throat> okay, so that then brings us to the next big hairy ass question, which is vision. In a time of tumult and change and uncertainty, how do you stay true to your vision? And when do you need to, how do you recognize when you need to let go of it and maybe realize you've got to go for plan B? Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing is just knowing that you have that vision and spending time to really internalize that vision. So that that's the other thing. Like we as companies, as individuals, we often say like, we believe in these things, but then it's really not run through the whole company. It's kind of just, you know, it's just like the dressing that goes on the website and it's kind of how we pretend that our company is aligned and it's how That's we write it. Right. And we might, you know, put that out there, but if it doesn't really fit, if you don't really feel it within the organization, then it isn't your vision. And so it's going to be hard for your people to kind of lead up to that if it's not even like woven throughout that organization. Hmm. Just have a little thought. So if we look at the way most organizations operate, they tend to have an organizational framework. So they've got right. their old chart. But be- beneath that, there is the real organizational chart. So the people who help, the people who have influence, the people who get stuff done. And if you, t- uh, Alan Watkins does this, it's really fascinating. So they interview a thousand of your employees. And they find they ask them nine questions to get the real organizational chart. Wow. And now you can actually do something with that because he makes the point that org charts in 1910 technology that was designed <laughs> to help the American railroads run. So people knew what the hierarchy was. But we, yeah. we've now moved to a point where we're so distributed and we don't have that level of control. So I'm very curious about your thoughts on that, You know what, what the real organization looks like and how do you find that? Yeah, I mean, I, that's fa- I think that's fascinating that he would go in and kind of ask those questions because I think the other thing that happens in organizations is, you know, you have all these different departments and all these different people working together and all you have to do is take like a, a job in another department to realize quickly that like the <laughs> same culture is not throughout and different teams have different cultures. Some of that comes from the leadership. Some of that comes from the work they're doing. And that becomes, you know, and then when those two departments kind of work together, then there's like this mismatch in, you know, why we're all around the table together, because my team isn't really doing the same things that your team is. And they're not really focused on that, that same mission and that same vision. So I think he's on to something, but I think it's really hard to figure that out. And I think the best that you can do is, you know, try to have a firm understanding of what the mission and the values are that you're um, targeting for the organization and see how you can embed those in your team. And that's the best you're going to do without that kind of broad insight that, that he provides. Again, really interesting that you talk about embedding those skills or those uh, behaviors, because one of the things that has baffled me for years um, in the training world is the total lack of willingness to, for managers to reinforce or leadership to let their managers get involved. And Gartner's research on this is really clear. If you have one hour of uh, coaching per month per rep, good coaching per month per rep, after training, you get a 46 times higher return on investment from the training. Now, why wouldn't you? 
I mean, you didn't buy the training because you wanted the bloody training. You you bought the training because you wanted the results to improve. And that seems to be, it's almost forgotten because L&D is focused on retention. HR is focused on ticking a box. The VP of sales wants to see the performance improve, but does nothing about it. You've got finance looking for the cheapest option and procurement putting people through the ringer without ever really holding people to account for the outcome. The training industry is in desperate need of being blown up, in my experience, because there is no reinforcement. You've got tools like mobile practice, MindTickle, out there that can really reinforce those skills. And managers can uh, find those moments that they can coach. It almost never happens, though. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think you're right on the money. And and when there's kind of cuts, often training is like the first place, which is... (laughs) They they cut training, marketing, and recruiting. The three yeah. things get you out of the hole. Exactly, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think you're onto something. I think that's part of it. Like it's almost seen sometimes as a nice to have because people are so focused on actually getting the work done. But but the fact of the matter is if you train people right, if you coach people the right way, the work becomes so much easier to do. It's so much smoother. Yeah. Things run smoother. You make better returns. You know, all of that just works much better once once folks have an awareness. So if we think about the leaders in a dialogue, because let's deal with the I bit. Uh, If we think about the uh, leaders in a dialogue, what are the clues that tell them that they're moving into stress, that maybe they're putting unfair expectations on their people? Yeah, so first of all, your body will start to leak it out. And so that's one of the things. And so I often tell folks to even videotape yourself, or if you're going into a Zoom meeting, it's probably being recorded anyway. So go back and just see what you're what you're doing, right? Like, are you fidgeting during the thing? Are you having a tough conversation with your team and you're not really looking at them? You're like looking down. Like that's probably you blocking out all the emotions and that stress. So having a moment before you go into that, taking a deep breath, really visualizing what that conversation is going to look like. And you may not know what the reaction is from your team, but you may actually be surprised if you time it well. I mean, people understand. It's not like they're oblivious to what's happening within the company. They already probably have some awareness to that. So those are some things that you can do just to kind of prep yourself. But then the other thing is to really you know, we are all human. So sometimes we connect better with members of our team than with others. And you really have to kind of check yourself on that. So someone who was not a great performer and then things shift and all of a sudden they're a much better performer, like you may still hold some feelings of them not performing in the past and not realize that how much they've grown And so you have to be careful about that. You have to be careful about not putting expectations on your team that, you know, are just overinflated as well. So there are some teams in which, you know, the numbers that they're supposed to hit are just insane. And, you know, it would be like the top performer hitting, hitting the numbers like throughout the entire team. And that's just not going to work. So you have to have those realistic goals and, and also really talking to the team and asking them you know, what seems realistic? Like, let's have a conversation about what actually would seem like a realistic goal. And and you may not land on that. You may have some negotiation around what that is, but but you won't know unless you ask. I mean, part of the problem with communication is that people don't communicate. You know, they don't ask the hard questions. They don't, um, They what they do is they talk and they don't listen. Yeah. Well, again, if there was, three areas within a business that I would focus on. It wouldn't be sales training. It would be management, uh, enabling managers. It would be teaching people to listen empathically, surgically, and to ask phenomenally powerful questions and to learn how to do that instead of uh, answering questions. And you, you deal with those three and the majority of the other symptoms will start taking care of themselves because people don't listen, so they don't hear. So you end up getting conflict. That's your two and a half hours of drama. It's people not confronting the issues uh, in a, an adult to adult way. Uh, and so then they carry this baggage. And I mean, how many t- arguments do you reckon go on 
just inside one person's head where they've had the argument for both of you. Yeah, uh, exactly. Or you've, you've turned up and ju- made a judgment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as the leader in a difficult time, you're now facing things like financial pressure. You've got pressure from your board. You've got pressure from your investors. You've got competitive pressures. Your share price may be taking a bit of a tank. And that may represent an existential threat to your survival or the company's survival. It may make you vulnerable to acquisition uh, or takeover and then asset stripping and everything else that goes with that. So it strikes me that it's crucial that there is a really strong plan that takes into account your customers and your people. And it's not fixated on your numbers and your investors, because if your customers love you and they keep coming back and your people love you and they make your customers happy, then you're probably going to perform well, but you have to you have to get over that hump whilst you're not focusing on those numbers. And it takes a really brave executive to do that. So for them to be able to negotiate playing the long game, maybe moving their strategy from direct uh, to hybrid or channel, or to stop focusing on the quarterly numbers and focus on the stuff they actually have control over because they don't control the number. How does one prepare, other than a few deep breaths and a little bit of planning, how do you prepare mentally for such a big assault? Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, it's probably a mindset shift, like you said. So not every leader is going to come to that with that mindset. And so that takes a lot of like digging really deep. Also, just like you said, being really brave. So I think that, you know, as leaders, sometimes we get so caught up in in our careers and what's happening with, you know, where we're going to land next and what if this doesn't go well. And you've got to shut that off and really just come back to this is my, you know, this is for my people. Like I, you have to let that feed you. And so as a leader, you have to really be focused on your people. I was just talking to a friend last week and he was telling me a story about when he left a big company and he was saying that the CIO left and, and he gave his kind of going away video that he sent out to all the employees. And what impressed my friend about it was the fact that it, it said nothing about this is what I did. This is what I accomplished. It was all during my ten, like, tenure. This is what you accomplished. This is what you did. And so that is so important as a leader because, you know, you can lead, but you shouldn't be caught up in kind of your accomplishments. It's really the accomplishments of your team and how can you help them get there? So this then raises the question around recruitment and the kind of people that you hire who have that kind of disposition. Because what I see more often than not is uh, certainly in big business, it's a, a breeding ground for psychopathy. Um, yeah, if you if you read Bob Hare and Robert Bibiak's book, Snakes in Suits, their research shows that 5% of the US boardroom is made up of clinical psychopaths, only 3% on death row. So you've got a far better chance of um, you know, making it big in corporate America than anywhere else. Makes me wonder whether we have to go back and with a blank sheet of paper, redesign who we want as part of our business, redesign why we're in business. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I think you're right. And I think that sometimes the folks that end up in those high positions really aren't the best people to be there. And there's a number of reasons for that. And we talked about it earlier. You know, you can be the best person at your job and get promoted because you're really good at like doing that one thing. But that doesn't mean that you're good at managing people. And it also doesn't mean that someone who's not not hitting it out of the park at managing whatever that widget is cannot manage people either. So it's just, it's a really interesting thing. I think we need to start really thinking about who we put in those management positions and and hiring them initially for what needs to be. I, I teach a lot of personality as well. And um, it's really important to have different types of personalities on teams. Yeah. So if you think about just the the big five personalities, so it's openness, conscientiousness, extrovertedness, 
agreeableness and neuroticism. And neuroticism, not really a bad word. It's just how you approach worry. And so all of those are like a dial. You can turn them up or turn them down. If you're conscientious, that's a great trait to have. In some instances, it's a bad trait to have in others. And so all of all of the traits kind of have their, their double-edged sword. But if you're on a team and if you're managing a team, you may think, oh, I don't want somebody who's neurotic on my team. But you actually do because they're going to see these challenges coming. They're going to know they're coming. They're going to be able to look at what's happening and they're going to say, oh, I know there's going to be a road bump here. There could be a pothole here. You know, this could this could end in a big blow up. And they're going to see those ahead of time because that's just how they're wired, right? They're wired to look for those things. Yeah, so they're, they're the oracles. Um, who yeah, are, absolutely. The leadership will ignore yeah, but you wouldn't, and and you wouldn't want them though. It, when that crisis does hit, they can't take the lead because they're they're too worried, right? They get too wrapped up in the worry, and at that point, you have somebody who's maybe lower neurotic swoop in and take over. But that happens with all these traits, and so if you can layer your team with different traits, like that, just gives you a much more robust way of working, and it and it lets it lets different people experience that you know getting to a problem and really having those tough conversations because when you have those traits kind of covered you're going to have people willing to take that tough conversation and to start that tough conversation a really good friend of mine anthony willoughby mad as a box of frogs so uh, he spent the last 45 years working with indigenous people in papua new guinea in Ooh. kenya the mongols and he was with the Maasai, and he asked them, who are your leaders? I said, what do you mean, your leaders? Said, well, who are your leaders? He said, well, we have different leaders for different things. We have leaders from every generation for looking after our cattle, for defending our territory from neighboring tribes, from defending our cattle from predation. If there's a drought, if there's a flood, you know, they have leaders at every layer of the organization, uh, of the tribe. And I'm really curious about how you see leadership evolving. What are the new leadership models that you see probably more fit for purpose rather than command and control? Yeah, I mean, I think, so I think just coming back to this, this idea that we're all leaders in some way, shape or form. So even if you are just a single operator within a company, you are still leading something. You still have this ability to lead others, um, even colleagues. Sometimes you see people lower down the chain, even leading their management, right? Because it's just kind of in how they, they approach the world. So I think it's really important to look at different leaders, to look at different levels. Um, I know that you know, there's this idea of women getting stuck on that middle rung in leadership. And, and that comes down to just timing and kind of what's happening in life. And there's a, you know, a million studies on that as well. But we need to be kind of willing to look outside the box a little bit at who we're putting in positions and why we're putting them in there. And so again, coming back to, you know, not putting somebody in a leadership position and then just walking away and not giving them any coaching or any training and expecting them to know how to manage people when they've just been, you know, working on the database for the last two years or something. Something that I've observed it, uh, anecdotally, but the, the academic research is out there as well, is that diverse teams tend to come up with much more creative solutions where there is a, a requirement to have lots of eyes on the problem. And what I'm really curious about is how we're going to shift because there are not enough women in leadership. There are not enough non-middle-aged white men in management. And as things start to really hot up over the next couple of years, I think it's going to be really important to have diverse teams and bring in uh, people from outside your partners, your strategic alliances, so that you get more eyes on the problem with different perspectives, so that you get a more 360 um, or you know, a, a three-dimensional understanding of the problem because then the solutions tend to fall out the bottom much more easily uh, without lots of effort and much more cheaply. And they're developed by the people who have to live with the outcome of the solution yeah. as well. How are we going to get senior leadership, I have a vested interest in keeping the old boys club going, to open the door? Because they're not doing themselves or their shareholders any favors. No. 
No, they're not. And I, I think it's a really interesting problem. And I, I don't know exactly how we open the door. I'm certainly working on it. I mean, I just have been in one med device company and we've been doing this long, you know, five week course where I'm helping women and, and really helping them to have a voice in the workplace. Because the other thing is that, you know, depending upon who you are, you might have behaviors that don't work in in that workplace. And so it's really important to arm you with kind of some tools to push back on things, to, you know, call things out that are like inappropriate behaviors that you don't want to be a part of. And there needs to be like some support to help people to be able to do that. And so that's one of the things that can really help. But, you know, I think it's a tough problem. I think it's something that will shift eventually. And we're certainly seeing more, more women and more diversity, but it's slow. It's really a slow, slow road. Okay. Um, Shelley, we, we've come to time, sadly. Uh, as ever, great conversation. Very interesting. Thank you. Um, I, I'm fascinated by the blind spots that people are facing going into this you know, t- tough time that we're going to hit. W- what are the blind spots that you're seeing? You know, first of all, just being kind of head down and doing your job and not looking at what's happening around you. So I think that even whether it's whether we're going into a tough time or not, this is something that all employees should be doing. So how can you get intelligence from your organization? So not getting sucked into the drama, but knowing what drama is there, being aware of what's happening, being aware of who's on specific projects what types of people are getting promoted and can you, you know, do you fit that mold or are there things that you can do to kind of grow yourself? Um, So that I think is a blind spot that people need to kind of be aware of. Excellent. Shelley, thank you so much. Thank you. If you look back over your career, what was the best mistake you ever made that you learned something really valuable from? Oh, the best mistake. Boy, that's a tough one. The best mistake that I um, ever made was when I first opened my business, I pitched some business with very little experience on what I was doing. And I pitched like a, a pretty high price tag and I got it. And so I I think that um, that was a bold lesson in just to ask. Absolutely. Uh, shifts in money concept are fabulous when you, yes. uh, you can move the decimal point to the right. That's always nice. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. So what would you recommend people read, watch, or listen to at the moment? Yeah. So I one person that I love following is uh, Greg McKeon. So I don't know if you've seen his book, Essentialism, and he's got oh, a new fantastic. one, Effortlessness. Yeah. He, and he's, just, he's just written another one as well, hasn't he? He has. I think it's called F- Effortless. I haven't read it yet, but it's sitting on my on my Audible, actually. Yeah. So he is fantastic. Just that idea of kind of pulling in your life a little bit and being like the editor of your life. I think for even for leaders, that is just such a fantastic concept and so important for people to do. Well, I'll go for Multipliers by Liz Wiseman. I'll go for The Right Use of Power by Peter Block and The Road Less Stupid by Keith Cunningham. Fabulous books. Excellent. Shelley, how can people get hold of you? So the best place to find me is LinkedIn. So you can search me up because I put out videos and things that people can get some quick tips for. And you can also find me at theauthenticinfluencegroup.com. Fantastic. Shelly O'Donovan, thank you. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this insightful, and God knows if you didn't, you're an idiot, then please tag someone, make notes, go back and listen to it again, implement. And if you feel the urge, then go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Be rude about me if you like. I won't be offended. If you want to get hold of me, Marcus at laughsafeandlast.com. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.